Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. This is your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 90, Emirates A340 Accident Report Released. On 20 March 2009, an Emirates A340 aircraft with 275 passengers and crew on board was involved in a tail strike accident during takeoff from Melbourne, Australia. The aircraft suffered some damage, but there were no injuries to anyone on board. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau recently released preliminary findings that indicated that an incorrect weight had been used when making performance calculations prior to the departure. The calculations were based on a takeoff weight that was 100 tons below the actual takeoff weight of the aircraft. What follows is the audio from the Australian Transport Safety Bureau briefing about this event from 30 April 2009. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for coming today. My name is Julian Walsh. I'm the uh, Director of Aviation Safety Investigation at the ATSB. Uh, today, uh, the ATSB is releasing um, the preliminary factual report of the tail scrape accident involving the Emirates uh, A340 aircraft registered A6 Echo Romeo Golf, which occurred during takeoff at uh, Melbourne Airport at about 10:30 p.m. on the 20th of March 2009. The aircraft was being operated on a scheduled passenger flight from Melbourne to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Now, it's important to note, oh, hopefully the technology will work here. We'll go back one, yes it is. Um, just important to note that um, the information contained in this preliminary report that we're releasing today is exactly as the name suggests, limited to preliminary factual information that has been established in the initial stages of the investigation. It doesn't contain any analysis and it doesn't contain any findings and those are issues that are subject to significant amount of ongoing work and that's the sort of information that will be included in the final report. The takeoff uh, from runway 16 at Melbourne Airport uh, was planned as a reduced power takeoff and the first officer was the handling pilot for the departure. During the takeoff roll, the captain called for the first officer to rotate, that is to pull back on the side stick and to, to lift off if you like. And that's uh, a, a, uh, the graphic on the screen here at the moment uh, just shows you the um, um, information from the FDR that actually uh, uh, coincides with that point when the, the, the first officer was called to rotate. The first officer attempted to rotate the aircraft but it did not respond immediately with the nose up pictures you'd expect or as he would have expected. The captain again called uh, for rotate and the first officer uh, applied greater nose-up command. The nose of the aircraft then raised and the tail made contact with the runway surface. And that second graphic there indicates that, that phase of the flight. So although the nose of the aircraft actually lifted, the aircraft did not begin to climb. At that stage, the captain commanded and selected TOGA, that is take-off or go-round, sorry, take-off, go-round power. And that's the maximum thrust that the engines will supply. The engines responded immediately to that command and the aircraft subsequently commenced the climb. After becoming airborne, the flight crew received a message in the cockpit indicating that a tail strike had occurred. So they contacted Melbourne Air Traffic Control and advised them that they would need to return to Melbourne but that they'd need to dump fuel to reduce the aircraft's weight prior to the landing. The aircraft held over Port Phillip Bay for about 36 minutes uh, to dump the fuel to reduce the aircraft's weight. 
While the crew were reviewing aircraft performance documentation in preparation for the landing, the crew themselves noticed that an incorrect weight had been inadvertently entered into the... Um, sorry, inadvertently entered into what's known as an electronic flight bag, which is essentially a, a laptop, a high-performance laptop that has um, special software developed by the aircraft manufacturer loaded onto it. So when they put data into that uh, electronic uh, flight bag, um, there was a, uh, an incorrect value uh, input. In this instance, the performance calculations were based then on a takeoff weight that was 100 tonnes below the actual takeoff weight of the aircraft. This resulted, um, or this incorrect takeoff weight, shall I say, uh, resulted in the production of a uh, thrust setting and takeoff reference speeds that were lower than those that were required for the aircraft's actual weight. During the return to, land, uh, to Melbourne to land after they'd completed the fuel dump, a cabin crew member reported what was thought to be smoke in the cabin. Uh, the crew advised ATC that they wanted to land immediately and they continued straight ahead with a landing, which was then uneventful, and the aircraft subsequently taxied to the terminal where passengers disembarked normally and there were no reports of injury. Damage to the aircraft included uh, a braided skin to the rear lower fuselage and damage to the rear pressure bulkhead. And you can see on the, the uh, photograph here, uh, you can see the uh, you can see the abrasion here, and it's actually worn through, uh, actually through the full thickness of the skin. And up here, this is a, a waste uh, water uh, point. It's a drain from the aircraft and there's an inspection panel here that's, uh, that's come off uh, and that panel was located near the end of the runway by, by ground staff shortly after the, uh, the accident. An inspection of the runway and the overrun areas identified multiple contact marks. The tail of the aircraft made contact with the runway at three locations, each starting at the positions indicated by one, two and three on this, this graphic here. So again... Uh, here at one, the tail then contact the runway initially here, and again down here. After leaving the stopway, two contact marks were identified in the grass area, indicated by four and five on this particular graphic here. And you'll see again here and here. This photograph here just shows you some typical uh, contact marks with the ground. Uh, on the left hand side you can see a uh, scrape mark on the runway uh, and on the overrun area and on the right hand side uh, that's the scrape mark that's in the clearway uh, off the end of the runway. The tail of the aircraft also clipped a uh, high intensity approach lighting centerline strobe light uh, and that's uh, just down uh, here. It also clipped uh, what's called a localizer uh, monitor antenna which is just a uh, an antenna that, that's used to monitor the performance of a navigation aid and then the, the right uh, sorry the left uh, main tyre uh, came in contact with uh, the localizer antenna which is positioned just down here and that's uh, just an indication there you can see uh, one of the arrays uh, missing there on the uh, just slightly left of the centre and that's where the left uh, tyre of the aircraft has, has actually um, hit the localizer antenna. Sorry, what do they do? The, uh, the localizer antenna is part of the instrument landing system. 
So um, in poor weather conditions, it provides uh, lateral guidance uh, as part of the instrument landing system approach. So the ILS uh, system was out of action for a, a period of time, a short period of time, while uh, air services arranged for uh, project repair of the installation. The ATSB investigation is continuing. Uh, there's a, a substantial volume of ongoing work. Uh, our ongoing investigation will, will look at uh, human performance uh, and organisational risk controls. We'll be looking at uh, computer-based flight information planning, uh, including the effectiveness of the human interface of computer-based planning tools. And we'll be looking at um, the issue of reduced power takeoffs, including associated risks and how they're managed. Uh, the aircraft operator has informed the ATSB that uh, based on their internal investigation they've undertaken or are undertaking a number of reviews and those reviews uh, have, have been in, in, in progress for some time and are ongoing. Um, those reviews include into issues relating to human factors, uh, training, fleet technical and procedures and hardware and software technology. Uh, in addition, since we actually wrote this report, uh, Emirates has advised the ATSB that although there are a number of layers um, that are required to provide physical cross-checks um, during these performance calculations uh, in the interest of, of prudence and until the circumstances are better understood they've uh, introduced uh, a further level of independent cross-checking through the use of a second laptop computer. We continue to work uh, with representatives from a number of other organisations and agencies including the United Arab Emirates General Civil Aviation Authority uh, our counterparts in France, the French BEA, Emirates and Airbus. Uh, it's likely the investigation will, will take some time. As I said, there's a, a lot of work uh, still to do and ongoing, uh, but certainly should any critical issues or safety issues arise um, throughout that process, which we believe need urgent attention, we would certainly bring those to the attention of the, the agencies that are best placed to take prompt action. I'll be happy to take uh, any questions you've got right now. Julian, how close did this aircraft come to actually crashing? Look, uh, to be quite honest, I think uh, you know, speculating on how close it came to crashing is, is, is not really that useful, but I think, that's, I think we all recognise that this is, is definitely a very serious event and it's recognised as such uh, by Emirates uh, and, and all of those who know the circumstances and I think when you read the details in the report there's no question in anybody's mind as to how serious it was. Um, I guess you know, what, what we're focusing on is trying to understand uh, how uh, how the, the, the accident occurred, uh, what were the, the systems, what were the processes, what were the interactions with people uh, so that we can try and uh, look to reduce the chances of them happening again. Given the damage to the aircraft, was there any way that this uh, flight could have made it to its destination safely? Oh, look, I don't think continuing to the, uh, the destination would have been an option for, well, the, for the crew. I know, but what I'm trying to clarify is... That could it have made it if there was no warning? I mean, what would the situation have been? Look, I think, again, look, it's a bit speculative, because, I, I mean, to be quite honest, uh, the aircraft was, had no handling problems. Um, the, it was uh, functioning uh, entirely normally. Um, all of the aircraft systems uh, were functioning, so there was no failures of any systems. I mean, in a way, the only damage, uh, really apparent damage, is the scraping of the skin. Uh, and the lack of the pressure bulkhead. Now, of course, that would cause pressurisation problems, which means the aircraft wouldn't be able to climb to altitude. So, in essence, no, it, it wouldn't have been able to fly to Dubai. Um, but, I mean, the, the aircraft was, uh, you know, quite capable of, of operating normally uh, and all the systems were, were functioning as you'd expect. Indeed, if it had you know, attempted to fly uh, that far, you know, notwithstanding the pressurisation problems given the full thickness 
um, abrasions on the on the bottom of the tail. I mean, there would have been catastrophic damage, wouldn't there? I mean, the damage is, as you, as you saw in those photographs, so it's, it's damage to the skin. There are, is some damage to the rear pressure bulkhead, which is a, um, it's a, it's a, uh, a diaphragm which, which seals the, the rear part of the cabin. Um, and so, you know, really, I mean, to, to speculate on what might have happened if you tried to fly the aircraft, you know, really is not useful because, it, you know, really it would never have been done and it, it wouldn't have been a, you know, something that would have been sort of entertained or considered. I and mean, when something like that happens, it, it's quite standard procedure to return land. What do your records show of the um, number of hours that the pilots had been uh, flying in the preceding um, weeks? And uh, were they close to their uh, sort of limit in terms of uh, regulations or policies of the airline? Sure. Look, um, uh, the, uh, the history of the crew and, and what they've uh, done in, in the time leading up to any uh, incident or accident is is a pretty standard thing for all investigations to look at. Um, we're certainly looking at that, uh, that aspect. Um, it's an issue that uh, requires further work. Having said that, um, the information that we've received from the, uh, from the crew through interviews, uh, plus other evidence, at this stage is not indicating to any problem with fatigue. But, but were they close, sorry, were they close to that? that but I can't, I haven't got the, uh, those exact figures, but I, but I do know that we've looked at, um, at, at what they've done in the, in the time leading up to the accident. We've taken information from interviews and we've assessed that uh, against uh, fatigue risk models and, uh, and, and various requirements. And uh, at this stage, it's appearing like uh, fatigue uh, didn't, didn't appear to be a factor and they were within normal, normal limits. There was initial media reports that perhaps they'd pilots had been told to use less force when taking off because it's cheaper to save fuel that way. You said they inadvertently put a, a lesser number in the computer system. Are you sure it was inadvertent? Could it have been an intentional move to save fuel and money? Oh, absolutely not. Um, look, the, the reduced power takeoff is, is a procedure um, that, that is used uh, as a standard international practice and, and almost all airlines um, you know, using, doing these types of long-haul operations uh, use reduced power takeoffs. They're, they're procedures that are developed by aircraft manufacturers and they're procedures that aren't unique to Emirates and they're not unique to, uh, to, to Airbus. They apply to, to other manufacturers as well. Those procedures are developed by manufacturers. They're, they're tested. Uh, certifying authorities um, play a role in ensuring that, that the guidance is appropriate and it meets various uh, certifying standards. So, so these are quite standard procedures that are used throughout the industry and throughout the world and have been for many, many years. Um, the issue of uh, saving fuel, um, to be quite honest, the, there, there may be slightly less fuel used during the actual takeoff run from the aircraft, but fuel is not actually the, the main driver uh, behind these reduced takeoffs. Uh, and in fact, anecdotal information suggests that maybe slightly more fuel gets used uh, by the time the aircraft actually climbs to height uh, because it actually burns a bit more fuel at the lower power setting, taking longer to get, in, get into altitude. So the fuel issue really is, is not, not an aspect. It's done for um, uh, operating economies, for, for engine efficiency, and for right reliability of, of engines and those sorts of things. In terms of actually measuring the, the degree of error in, in Working, putting the material, the information into the computer, mm -hmm. instead of it made a difference of a hundred tons. That's well. correct. How much does, it, does this aircraft weigh? Well, the the, um, the actual takeoff weight of the aircraft was in the vicinity of uh, 362,000 tons. Okay, so the computer. Oh, that's correct. That's correct.
Look, uh, we haven't. Uh, there's no suggestion of any problem with uh, with the aircraft. But the focus of the investigation is on the operation of the aircraft, the operational aspects. That includes uh, the interaction of the crew uh, with the various systems. Uh, and so, what we need to understand, we know why that the aircraft had the problem, uh, is because this weight uh, was incorrect. The, the, the big job for us now, and, and the difficult part of the investigation, is to understand how the system. Uh, I guess allowed that to happen and, and that's going to be quite a complex thing to, to look at the, the operating environment look at what was going on in the cockpit at the time, uh, what sort of environmental issues were happening in terms of temperature noise, distractions uh, looking at the systems and those sorts of things and that, that's where the, the hard work is So it's clear someone's inputting the wrong number but it's why, why that's, that happened That's correct and would that have happened in the cockpit or by ground crew? Or no, no, this, is, this would have happened uh, in, in the cockpit. Where do they get the reference weight from to put into that? That's provided by, by their, their ground people, so they get information from, from their dispatch people and from the loading weights and, and, and those sorts of things. So the, so the figures that they had were, were in the cockpit were correct. There was a, an incorrect figure was input into the, into the computer in, in, the, uh, in the cockpit. Is it fair to say that that incorrect data entry took life at least? Well, obviously, uh, you know the the, um, you know, the aircraft uh, is, is is or the reduced power takeoff is is done to 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 match a particular weight of the aircraft, and the fact that the aircraft uh, didn't lift off in the required time uh, obviously increased risk. How does this rate compared to other um, new misses that you've investigated? Uh, look. Again, it's very difficult to make a comment about that because each, each accident, each incident has its own unique circumstances. I don't think it's, it's really possible to draw conclusions how this rates with, with, with other, other occurrences, to be honest. I wouldn't be able to do that. Just given that there were so many passengers on board, did it have potential to be Australia's worst air disaster? Well, I think I've sort of answered that question already. I mean, in terms of speculating on what could have been, it's, it's really is just speculation, and I, and I don't think that that's useful. It's, it's but you wouldn't really have blown it up there for much more than 36 minutes with that full thickness um, breach of the, the tail, would you? I mean, it couldn't have lasted you know, a few hours. I mean, I don't know. Well, look, I, I, I think to be quite honest, there's no reason why the aircraft couldn't have uh, flown for, for a longer period up there. I mean, I don't, you know, the, as I said, the, the crew had conducted all of the appropriate uh, checks in relation to the, the, the tail scrape. Uh, all of the controllability uh, was, was, was fine. Um, the aircraft has quite sophisticated systems for, uh, or, uh, yeah, systems for monitoring aircraft systems, uh, uh, right down to things like wheel tyre pre uh, pressures and, and those sorts of things. And uh, at the end of the day, um, everything on the aircraft was monitoring as normal. There were no failures of any of the aircraft systems. So, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, the urgency to get on the ground certainly wasn't there. Did the, the people on board the aeroplane have noticed that? Tail scraping along the ground was it such that it was a you know, big loud noise? Yeah, look, I would expect that, that that they would have been aware of it. I would expect that they probably would have heard a bang. They may have heard scraping noises, and certainly those people down towards the back of the aircraft probably would have seen some bright flash uh, as as the uh, you know, as the tail was scraping along the runway. There would have been a lot of lot of sparks and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, I would expect that, that that some people on the aircraft certainly would have been aware of it. Yeah. Um, I've been asked to ask you some questions about yesterday's report uh, from our Queensland. Everyone's finished with this one. Um, 
I'm asked to ask you whether Queensland is Australia's most dangerous place to fly. Well, I don't think uh, I've got any data to suggest that Queensland is Australia's most dangerous place to fly. Look, my the, the research report that went out yesterday is, is just a statistical report that the ATSB puts out on a quarterly basis. They're, they're just raw figures. They're not uh, normalised against activity rates or anything like that. So really to draw any conclusions from those figures you know, would, would be quite unwise. Um, and, and really beyond that, I'm personally not in a position to make any, any sort of specific comment about the, the, the research report, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm, you know, this is, I'm happy to cover this one. So it would be fair to say that the standard of pilot training in Queensland is the same as anywhere else and you're not looking at any ways of making it safer to fly in Queensland? There's no, no, no safety issue that the ACSP is investigating in relation to pilot training or safety in Queensland, that's correct. Okay, thanks very much. You can find additional information about this accident at airsafenews.com and at airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.